Okay, so today we're starting a new series on the Ten Commandments, and my aim in this is quite simple. For centuries, literally from its inception, the church has always trained its people in four, four basic elements. The Lord's Prayer, the Sacraments, the Ten Commandments, and the basics of the faith as outlined in the Apostles' Creed. The fathers believed that if converts to the faith knew these elements, then they knew the entirety of the faith. And we agree. So it's been my time, it's been my plan rather for some time now to make it through these four essential elements. Last year, in the sweltering heat under the tent, we made our way through the Lord's Prayer and its concise declaration of what it means to pray, what we should pray for. Um, shortly after that, we took a look at the Lord's Supper, and just over the last couple of weeks, we looked at baptism. Um, and in them, the two sacraments, the mystery of God's design for the church was unfolded. Now that leaves us two more, the Ten Commandments and the Apostles' Creed. This summer, it's the commandments, and maybe next year, we'll get into the creed. Now, if the Lord teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, and in the Lord's Supper and baptism, he teaches us about what the church is, and more importantly, who its head is, then the Ten Commandments teach us about the basics of Christian ethics and behavior. Of them, Martin Luther says, here then, we have the Ten Commandments, a summary of divine teaching on what we are to do to make our whole life pleasing to God. They are the true fountain from which all good works must spring, the true channel through which all good works must flow. So it seems then, at least in theory, that in ten or so weeks, when we have made our way through the commandments, we should all be better disciples, schooled in the divine law. However, before approaching the commands themselves, an introduction is required. So let's begin by reading the preface to the commandments. This is Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now this seems like an odd preface to the Ten Commandments. God rehearses his saving action, I brought you out of the house of slavery. Yet, this declaration of freedom, of liberation, is immediately followed by a list of commands, more laws and more rules to obey. The Israelites, it seems, were redeemed from one Pharaoh to be re-enslaved by an even greater, more powerful Pharaoh, I brought you out of slavery only to give you commandments. Now, it might appear that way to our eyes, but the strange thing is the Ten Commandments are unapologetically set forth as a means of liberation, as a means of freedom. So how can commandments, rules, and statutes be the path to freedom? It's oxymoronic, patently self-contradictory to our sensibilities, like airplane food or military intelligence. 
That's a cheap shot. Liberal religion. In the same way, freedom and commandments don't seem to belong together. Now, a few years ago, there was an article on CNN titled, Behold the Atheist's New Commandments. An influential businessman and a humanist chaplain crowdsourced what they called 10 non-commandments. They whittled down over 2,800 submissions to the following list of 10. Commandment number one, be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Not so bad. Commandment number two, strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not believe what you wish to be true. You think that they have us in mind with that one. Three, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Four, every person has the right to control their body. Five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Six, be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Seven, treat others the way you would want them to treat you and can, reason, and can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Eight, we have responsibility to consider others, including future generations. Nine, there is no right way to live. Ten, leave the world a better place than you found it. Now, that's a decent list, albeit with a few notable ex- uh, exceptions. But what I want to point out in this list of commandments is commandment number nine. There is no one right way to live. So despite this being a list of commandments implying obligation and obedience, it is relativized. These are the non-commandment commandments. Now, I bring that up not to really make a point about atheists, but to demonstrate how that very same sentiment pervades the church. We, too, are not very big on commandments. They are a bit too negative for our sensibilities. Thou shall not. Thou shall not. Again and again and again. So it's my contention that atheists and believers stand on the same ground. We don't equate freedom with commandments. It's just the opposite. Now, if that's the case, and it likely is, I think it's because the vast difference in our understanding of freedom and that of the Scriptures. Right? We don't understand freedom in the same way. For us, freedom is fundamentally about choice. We don't like being boxed in. We don't like being labeled. And we definitely don't like being commanded. So what this means, what it looks like, is that one's path and identity, indeed their destiny, cannot be received. That is, it cannot be handed down from their parents or their culture or their religion, but rather it has to be freely chosen. That really is our only commandment, the right to decide for ourselves what we will believe, want, need, own, and serve. And therefore, to have anything constraining or limiting one's sovereign will, their ability to choose whatever they want, is tantamount to slavery. And hence, 
Anything that restricts one's choice, be it parents or an institution or a moral code, must be broken down in the name of freedom. So our version of the Exodus story would end with deliverance from Egypt. Rather than all that oppressive stuff about covenant and commandment, blessing and cursing, God would simply turn us loose to do as we please. You've been delivered, now go on your way. But the thing is, absolute freedom does not exist. According to the more ancient understanding, freedom is for something, be it a human or an animal or a machine even, to be ever more fully what it is. In other words, human freedom is inseparable from human nature. To be free is not simply to do whatever one pleases, but to be able to flourish as the kind of being one is. An acorn is free to become an oak. It's determined by its nature. It's not free to become an elephant. Now, an illustration might help. I realize that a lot of people are missing, so maybe this illustration won't might help. But I'm sure most of you, some of you, have seen The Incredibles. Yes, maybe, maybe. It's a charming movie about a superhero family. Now, Dash, the youngest, has super speed. That's his power. And all he wants to do is play sports. And so he begs his mom, I promise I'll slow up. I'll be the best, but only by a tiny bit. But his parents, being former superheroes, obviously want him to live a normal life, and so they won't let him. Now, understandably, poor Dash is upset and frustrated. And you fast forward in the movie a little bit. They get into a situation, or rather their dad does, and they need to go rescue him. And so their mom has to leave. But before she does, they're on this uh, deserted island. Before she does, she tells Dash, if anything goes wrong, use your powers. Run as fast as you can. And so beaming, Dash, Dash asks, as fast as I can. And she responds, as fast as you can. And of course, things go wrong, and Dash gets to turn loose for the first time in his life. If you know the movie, you, you know exactly what scene I'm talking about. He's darting through the jungle, dodging bad guys along the way, until he comes up upon a lake. And he puts his hands over his, eye, over his face, and he closes his eyes, thinking he's going to crash into the lake like a person on their water skis. But he doesn't. Instead, he realizes that he's running on top of the water, and then he begins to laugh. And anyway, he takes off, and the movie continues. But I really love that scene, and I always have, because it illustrates the kind of freedom that we're talking about. One flourishing as the kind of being they are. Dash was born to run, and he is free in his running. Now, in the same way, humans are free You and I are free, not simply when we get to do whatever we want to do, but when we are becoming the very thing that we were created to be, what we were meant to be. And what are we meant to be? That's not something we can determine for ourselves. Now, that's what we hear today. You you can choose who you want to be, but as Christians, we believe that that comes from God. Our nature is not plastic. 
able to be shaped and reshaped according to our desires. It's fixed. The architect of our nature must be the one to tell us what our nature is intended for. And that's where the Ten Commandments enter the picture. In them, the good, the thing for which humans were created, their highest end is articulated. Again, as Martin Luther says, we should prize and value them, that is the commandments, above all other teachings as the greatest treasure God has given us. It's a strange way to think of commandments. Now, one might imagine the commandments as an animal pin, pen, marking out the boundaries and keeping us fenced in. It leads to understanding them, which I think is probably the normal understanding, as a constriction, an apparatus hindering our freedom and adventure, keeping one in from the open plains. Now, that's one way to understand them, but it's probably better to understand them as a ladder. It's not as a fence, not as bars constraining us, but as a ladder leading us up. Each rung is another step toward the telos, toward the aim, toward the goal for which humanity was created. So the commandments, rather than keeping us in check, a governor that's placed upon our freedom, think of them as stepping stones toward our exaltation, to becoming more fully human. And so, the liberty and multiplication of choice that we parade as freedom isn't freedom, but merely the possibility of freedom. Freedom is not simply the ability to choose, but the ability to choose well. There are many choices that one might think are making them more free, more truly themselves, Think about just on almost every decision we've ever made. But in the end, those decisions are only reinforcing our bondage, not making us more free, but in fact, the opposite. And and listen, having the freedom to choose isn't a bad thing. Far from it. We are all very grateful that we don't live in medieval Europe where our destiny was determined from the beginning. We have a great opportunity and um, so many different paths that are available to us. And for that, we're grateful. But freedom to choose carte blanche without one's choice being directed towards some end. Again, think that ninth, ninth atheist commandment, there is no one right way to live. So freedom to choose without that freedom directed somewhere inevitably enslaves. Remember the prodigal son. Every opportunity lay before him. His father's house behind him, the old system of Judaism behind him. He's completely free to do whatever he wants, and yet where did that unadulterated freedom land him? In the pig's pen. A slave. Now now listen, if our modern freedom, our, our modern understanding of freedom, if it doesn't terminate in bondage, it breeds purposelessness and depression and ever-growing violence. We have liberated ourselves from every given in life. There's no institution, there's no ethical system, there's no man or woman or God who can limit our choice, but what for? 
we have been set free for nothing. We've turned ourselves loose, but there's nothing to use that freedom for. In fact, the highest good in our society is simply the, it, it's to choose. But what is that if you don't have something to choose for? And hence, it seems quite obvious why, you know, the younger generation doesn't quite un- value freedom because what, what am I free for? To waste my life? There's nothing aim- to aim at. So, contrary to our situation, more choice, less freedom, resulting in purposelessness, anxiety, and depression. The commandments, the Ten Commandments, set forth a better way. Indeed, they do limit our choice. You shall not. Yet, maybe paradoxically, they increase our freedom and subsequently foster a deep joy. A couple years ago, a journalist wrote a piece um, on the management secrets of Bill Belichick. Now, Belichick, for the uninitiated, is regarded as the best coach in the history of the National Football League. The article ponders why many star players don't succeed in the Patriot system, while many less skilled players do. So typically, most of the big shots don't do well in New England, but less skilled players, um, they thrive. They earn Hall of Fame careers. So the article says it all comes down to the system. It's not so much about raw talent as it is about learning to thrive within their way of doing things. It requires a submission and a willingness to enter fully into the structure and discipline. And the article ends with these words that capture the patriot way. You follow rules to attain your freedom. You learn by rote so that you can live with abandonment. This, too, is a truth of wide application. And indeed it is. And it provides us with an analogy to the freedom that the Ten Commandments offer us. Again, it's not simply the freedom to do whatever one pleases, but a higher freedom. The freedom of complete abandonment to something greater. A professional athlete is free to improvise and innovate on the court because he has spent countless hours mastering basic techniques. A pianist is free to write and create new music because she has studied the craft her entire life. A mathematician is free to come to new conclusions because he's internalized the discipline. Now, in the same way, the commandments narrow our choices and limit our possibilities, but for a purpose. They train us in righteousness and holiness that we might be truly human. So, one may not be bound to the commandments in obedience, but that doesn't mean they're free. Instead, it means they're enslaved to their own corrupted passions The situation calls for grace and patience, but they cannot rise to the occasion. They're not free to do as they need to do, but instead, they're chained to their anger. And in the same way, let's say the athlete or the pianist or the mathematician failed to train. 
would they be free to perform great feats? Hardly. Instead, they would be enslaved to their weakness and ignorance. Philo, a contemporary of the apostles, explains it this way. He says, Moreover, as among cities, some being governed by an oligarchy or by tyrants endure slavery, having those who have subdued them and made themselves master of them uh, for uh, severe and cruel tyrants, while others existing under the superintending care of the laws and under those good protectors are free and happy. So also in the case of men, those who are under the dominion of anger or appetite or any other passion or of treacherous wickedness are in every respect slaves. And those who live in accordance with the law are free. So our corrupted passions are likened to tyrants who lord it over us, exercising authority over us as slaves. But to live in accordance with the law is compared to a land governed by just laws and good protectors, free and happy. In the end, I hope you can see, we're presented with really only two options. Be free in regard to the commands, but slaves to sin. Or, be slaves to the commands and free in regard to sin. Which of those is true freedom? So thus, in the commandments, though they be commandments, we have a picture of a true human. One utterly free to be that which they were created for. Now, in that sense, the Ten Commandments, if that's what they're really about, is human freedom and directing humans toward the end for which they were created. If that's true, then the Ten Commandments must be a portrait of Christ, who is the true human. Right? How interesting. Christ delivers the commandments to Israel on Mount Sinai, and then he fulfills the commandments in his incarnation. He is true God, the author of the commandments, and true man, the aim and fulfillment of the commandments. Now, it's interesting. The commandments are addressed to Israel as a nation, right, as a whole, yet they're spoken to the individual. You shall not. Perhaps that is because the commandments are to be obeyed by each individual, but I think something else is going on. We might ask, Who was delivered from the house of bondage in Egypt? Israel, obviously, or as God says, my son. Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. The Lord speaking to Moses says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn born. So the Ten Commandments are a father's loving direction to his maturing son, instructing him in the way that he should go. The you of the commandments is not necessarily every individual, though every individual is bound to obey it. The you is directed toward Israel, God's son. And thus, in obedience to the commandments, Israel The nation was to mature into his father's image. 
In fact, in the New Testament, Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul likens the commandments to guardians or managers that God set over the nation until it would reach its maturity at the coming of Christ. But we know that this son, Israel, was unable to heed his father's instruction. In fact, if you read just after the giving of the Ten Commandments, what do the people say? Don't let God speak to us. We don't, Moses, you speak to us. And of course, Deuteronomy, what does Moses say? You won't be able to obey these words. The commandments, rather than creating blessing, brought a curse upon Israel. The son failed. Set apart to be a priestly people, a beacon of righteousness and holiness to the nations. Instead, he caused his father's name to be blasphemed among the Gentiles. But Israel was not hopeless. Why? Because the father would have another son, the eternal son. This son, Jesus Christ, acts in the place of the other son and succeeds where he failed. This son, Jesus Christ, obeys his father's instruction, having no other gods, making no idols, and the rest. Thus, in the New Testament, the apostle says, Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law. Now, Paul's words are best taken to mean that Christ is the goal of the law rather than its termination. In fact, the NIV translates, translates it, Christ is the culmination of the law. He's the culmination of it. In other words, the commandments were set forth as a foreshadow of Christ's manner of life. As all things in Scripture, they are about Him. His actions interpret the commandments, and the commandments interpret His actions. And thus, far from abolishing the commandments, we say with the Apostle Paul, we establish them. They become to us the law of Christ. And so finally, we've arrived at what theologians call the third use of the law. There's three ways to use the law in our lives. So the first way to use the the commandments is pedagogical or teaching. It brings attention to God's will and our sin. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3 verse 20, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the commandments function in this manner prior to one's conversion. They bring to light the knowledge of sin, as is the case of the rich young ruler. What shall I do to inherit eternal life, he asks. And Christ responds, If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. But because he coveted, coveted, namely all his possessions, which is forbidden by the 10th commandment, he went away grieving. In other words, the commandments function as a mirror that reflects back to us our true condition, that we stand condemned. Right Through the commandments, through the law, comes the knowledge of sin. So that's the first use. The second use of the law is civil. That is, the commandments are something of a natural law that reminds rulers of their responsibility to restrain evil. 
Again, the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. So the commandments are given to Israel in the context of the covenant, yet in some manner they are written on humanity's collective hearts. For this reason, theologians have understood the commandments as a universal standard. Natural law, they say. Though humanity is fallen, memory of its former righteousness remains implanted on the conscience. Thus, though not their primary use, it would be a good thing for nations to use the commandments as the basis for moral law. It accords with the way God created all humans. Now, lastly, and this is where we're coming, and I mention those so that hopefully to diffuse any confusion, the last use of the law is the third use, and it's uniquely applied to the church. The Ten Commandments teach and exhort believers, that's us, to live a life worthy of, Of the calling with which we've been called. Initially, the commandments serve to bring one to repentance, to point them to Christ. And once that function is accomplished, they don't become obsolete, but they take on a new function. Again, the Apostle Paul is our guide. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So pay attention to the purpose of the church's redemption. God condemned sin in the flesh, and for what purpose? So that, the apostle says, the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. So the commandments are not abolished in Christ, but transfigured, becoming the standard of our sanctification. Whereas before, apart from the Spirit, the commandments were an instrument of death, think Romans 7, now in the Spirit, they are attainable, at least in part. As John says, 1 John 5.3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So the commandments, far from being an oppressive requirement, far from being something legalistic, are the expression of our love for God. The commandments are not a source of death, but life, a place where Christ is found. And so we can say with the psalmist these incredibly exalted words, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward, right? So we don't have to pit 
law versus gospel against each other as their two opposite principles. Gospel is supreme, but it brings the law into it and transforms it. So, if this is the case, and it is, how should we approach the commandments? Right, so, so what should our uh, approach and, and way, you know, as we're going to go through the rest of the Ten Commandments for the next however many weeks, how should we approach them? James, the Lord's brother, elaborates. Chapter 1, verse 25, But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So previously, he referred simply to the word, but here he narrows his focus to the perfect law, nothing other than the Ten Commandments. So he urges us to look intently at them, literally meaning, in the Greek, to bend over. It pictures someone stopping and kneeling to take a closer look at something that has caught their eye. And what this does, I think, is it implies a bottomless depth to the commandments, They aren't merely do's and don'ts, but moral trajectories containing so much more than arbitrary rules, as Jesus articulates in the Sermon on the Mount. Just as our laws, the decent ones at least, aren't instituted for their own sake, but reflect a whole moral philosophy and system of justice. So the Ten Commandments don't exist for their own sake, but are deep wells containing the divine ways. Take, for instance, the fourth commandment, to keep the Sabbath. It seems like a distant and unrelatable requirement, but what might the imperative to rest tell us about, say, human nature, or our relationship to the rest of creation, or our habits of work, or our trust in God? Quite a lot, in fact. Behind each commandment lies a beautiful and rational structure giving insight into the divine mind. And so when we tap into that deeper meaning of the commandment, we're tapping into something about the very way the world is. As the Apostle Paul says, the commandments are, this is Romans chapter 2, verse 20, the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. The commandments are the embodiment. That's incredibly exalted language of knowledge and the truth. And so, James says, having bent over to look deep into the divine commands, were to abide by them. Again, it literally translates to stay there next to them. So if the commandments have caught our attention, we're not to leave them in the dirt where we found them, but to bring them with us. The idea is that we're to gaze into the divine law until it's imprinted on our souls. It's one thing to comprehend that in the commandments all knowledge and truth is embodied. And it's another thing entirely to have those enter into our hearts. Again, remember the psalmist's words. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the eyes. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And so finally, Having made our home in the commandments, we are told to do them and we'll be blessed. Rather than running against the grain and wounding ourselves in the process, we will have learned to abide by the way things really are and we will have become free. 
So as we wind down, as we end this, allow me to just culminate with one last word. If the commandments are our wisdom, then they're also our witness. Listen to Moses' words to Israel. Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples who will hear these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? The commandments are our treasured possession because in them they make known to us the ways of Christ who is the fulfillment of the commandments. And so in keeping them, we become a light to the nations, a city set on a hill. In the church, the nations will see a people not dominated by covetousness and envy, by lies and slander, by immorality and wickedness, but a people free in love and kindness and due reverence for one another. They will look to us so long as we're obedient to the commands, and they will see human life as it's meant to be lived. They will be converted, and our Father in heaven will be glorified. Let's pray.